I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. It was such an honour to speak to Dominique Christina. Her work is remarkable. Her voice is insistent and fierce and tender and kind and wrathful and beautiful, sometimes all at the same time. She speaks truth to power in a way that few can. She describes herself as a performing artist, an author, an educator and an activist. Her words can stir tears or they can stir revolutions. Her words awaken the imagination and invite it blinking into the world. I think she's amazing and by the end of this you will too. I started off our conversation by asking her, what does imagination mean to you? Well, I think we're I think we're talking about something that is fundamentally simple, but I think that like most things that are simple, we have a tendency to want to complicate the complicate those things. You know, we our our minds are constantly interacting with, interpreting and and manipulating images right and so fundamentally it's like it, you're you're really talking about um how vast the canvas how vast the canvas is allowed to be right um for, for people who have no imagination may, perhaps it's a postcard or a stamp the size of a stamp uh and then there are others who you wouldn't be able to get their artwork in a stadium they, they, they are constantly able to see beyond the obvious or the apparent or the most known. I think that we certainly lose our ability to engage in risk-taking behavior in terms of how we think and how we interpret if we find ourselves in repressive or suppressive or oppressive systems or if we find ourselves in restrictive environments where we are not just taught to think, but we are taught how to think. Certainly, uh, there are aspects of your imagination that I think suffer in those environments. But then at the same time, there are also individuals who thrive in those very environments. They are the ones that know how urgent imagination has to become in those same environments. It's very interesting. Did I answer your question? I tend to sort of spin out, so you have to keep me... You know, you gotta bring me back, <laughs> bring me back down if you see me. Yeah. How? What's the best, or what would you recommend for for how how to take, uh, how we can craft anger at the injustice that we see around us in the world at the moment into a positive fuel for change? What's that sort of transmuted? What's that transforming process? How does that work? You know what? I think I I. I think it's a wonderful question, but I also think that we are we are always going about it in the wrong way. You know, when you are talking about how to address a problem, you then become fixated on the problem. Right. The problem is now in the center of the room. The broken things are in the center of the room. Whatever is not working or whatever is dysfunctional is what's taking up all the space. Right. And then your interrogation of it, your consideration of it or whatever you are. You're reacting to the brokenness. So the brokenness is everything, right? Fundamentally for me, the reason why we don't get things done the way that I think we could get things done, because there are enough amazing, miraculous, impossible, supernatural people on this planet who love this planet 
and who operate from goodness and integrity and accountability, but we get so bogged down in staring into the abyss that we've lost our sight of heaven, our version of heaven. So to me, the most radical thing that you can do is to center the, the, you know, the wholeness, the center wellness, not brokenness. The way to respond to me to some of this stuff is to imagine what we want as opposed to constantly reacting to what we do not want. You know, there, to me, when I am, when I am spending too much time thinking about that which I don't like or I'm dissatisfied with, I'm feeding it and giving it all of this energy and then it becomes the biggest thing in the room. And I'm just not interested in that, right? And so I'm, I'm more interested in, in movements that center wholeness and wellness and fundamentally reject and silence any narrative that says that there's an inevitability to our destruction or that, you know, I, I just think that we cannot continue to feed that narrative. And the only way to starve it is to begin to really cultivate and nurture the life that we want and the way in which we envision this world should be what's in the center of the room all the time, as opposed to the broken stuff always entering and centering in the room. I don't know if I answered that, but for me, that's that's been a critical piece, you know, that we are we are so bogged down with how dysfunctional it is that we end up spending all of our time talking about the dysfunction and, and less time thinking about and envisioning a world in which we are well and whole and in, in cooperative spaces with one another and operating with integrity and respect for one another. But I can't get there because I'm too busy talking about this new bill that passed, you know, that I, 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 I would prefer for people to impose their will on government than for governments to impose their will on people. And how how would you um, uh, evaluate or assess or what's your sense of the state of health of the imagination in the US in 2018? It's an interesting question. This is the distance, right? This is the gap between, for me, between the poet and the politician, because I would say for the politician, even the well-meaning ones, like the ones that are really, I think, fundamentally well-intentioned, I think they've lost their imagination. I think they are locked into a, a very specific way of doing things, a very specific way of understanding things, a very specific way of speaking to things. I, I, I think they are completely stuck, right? Whereas I think the poet, the author, the, the artist, the photographer, the painter, the musician, I think they are using the raw material of possible to say all of the urgent things. I think it's we're totally we're on very different you know ends of the spectrum here. I think politics, I think they use language to lie. That's what I think. I think that they or, or to evade or to deceive or to cloak, right? A very cloaked and daggered sort of way of using language. And I think. Artists, poets, writers, I think we use language to reveal, to peel back, to expose. And so while politicians are locked in and seem to have aborted their imaginations, I think 
I think authors, I think writers, I think creatives are unlocking theirs. I think we recognize, like we always have, we recognize the urgency in it, you know? We can see it dying around us, you know? We can see people being imprisoned by their own sort of training and conditioning, the one, this one habitual response. And we just don't, we don't want a world that looks like that, you know? So sometimes we're doing things purely to interrupt the space, just to get people awake again. Like, you know, sometimes that's what I'm doing. Sometimes I say things in a, in a space in this very, like, <laughs> sort of rigid and noble atmosphere. Um, I will say something that I know is inappropriate just to get people to feel something. Like, we don't have to actually sit here and, and do the dance. Like, go ahead and wake up and tell me I pissed you off. That's cool. But but be in your body, you know? Like, don't do not do the robotic thing. Don't do the, hey, how are you? Good, how are you? And, and it's, it's like ship's passing, and it means nothing. I'm just, I'm not good at banter. I'm not good at empty. I, I need substance. And so I think we really are, for creatives, I think we really are trying to suss out all that is urgent and necessary and important and deeply human about our imagination and trying to envision a world that allows for us all to be whole and intact. True. I, I mentioned in, in, in the email to you about how when I was researching for this and I watched a lot of videos of your uh, of your performances and how your your the way that you communicate and the beautiful way that you use your voice to sort of to be very sort of passionate and then very kind of quiet and to roll like a landscape but even now when i read really boring things if i imagine i'm reading them in your voice they become really interesting <laughs> it's great it's like oh it's just like it's just fantastic so i want what what is the what are tips it feels like it's such an important time for all of us and young people you know to find their voices and to uh and to be able to stand up and we see it in the me too movement we see it in lots of movements now with where, where young people are and the and the, the gun anti-gun stuff after the last shooting you know what sort of uh, as somebody who who feels to me incredibly skilled at how you own a stage and you and you speak truth to power from that place where you are what what sort of advice or recommendations would you give to other people about how to do that I just think you have to mean it. I know how pedestrian that sounds, but I can't tell you how uh, I feel like I am interacting with um, a pantomime or, uh, you know, the illusion of or the hologram of authenticity. You know, it's it's I think there are more people center stage who have mastered the art of deception and pretending to care than those who actually care and who mean it and who risk something or who bled to say it. And so I just know that for me, I mean everything I'm saying. Like I'm not, it's not even for the stage. These are the things that I'm also vocalizing in my life. This is not a performance for me. And I think that that's why it works. It's like, I'm, I am, I'm committed to the things that I've given voice to. I can't do it any other way. You know, I, it took me so long to say anything at all that by the time I did, 
that was it was it was like I had to first get there on paper and then from the age of 22 to the age of 34 I was just trying to figure out what my voice sounded like and making sure it was mine before I said anything out loud right so I don't pretend I don't perform I don't manufacture I don't there's nothing because I believe in the power of language. I know it's a culture keeper. I know it shifts the atoms in a room. I know it changes the temperature in a room. I know it alters people's existence. I mean, I know that. It's not what I think. It's what I know. So to me, being your most honest self, your most, like your radically honest self, right? If you practice that, you will astonish yourself because we are constantly lying and evading. We're even not completely honest when we're writing. We're always thinking about an audience and and perception and wanting to be understood and well-received and all of that. And so sometimes even then you're contorting, right? And so I don't do any of that. I don't have time for that. I, I just don't. You know, I, I life is too short. I am not going to get off this planet <laughs> without getting all my crazy done, period. You know, I may mess it up and you may not always agree with me or understand me, but at no time will anyone ever be able to say she didn't mean it. So that's my advice. You got to mean it. You know, do the necessary soul work first. Some things are tough to say. Some things are tough to name and own and interrogate and ponder. So do that work first. And then do the necessary work of curating language that you mean, that belongs to you, that you believe in, right? And then do the necessary work of putting it in a room and watching what happens to the ecosystem. Not because you need to change something if it doesn't go, if it's not perfect, but because that's instructive to pay attention to what happens in a room when you are doing nothing but showing up as yourself. That's it. When you do that one thing, it's the most radical act you can do, truly. And so that's all I'm doing when I'm on stage. That's truly it. There is no magic. There's like no hat trick. It's I am not lying at all. I am. I'm not hiding at all. I'm not pretending at all. If I am scared, you know it. If I'm broken, you know it. If I've been broken, you know it. If I am enraged you know it if i am elated right you know it so i'm not i'm not doing any shape shifting i'm not participating in that model that's my strategy is to have no strategy i'm just gonna be myself i'll stand out here bleed or shine or whatever it is i'm doing but it's entirely mine i mean it <laughs> I'm not changing or contorting to fit anyone's narrative or anyone's idea of, you know, what version of the story would be most palatable. I, I don't have time for that. So my friend Manda, who was the person who said, you must, must interview Dominique. Her question was, how do we make imagination contagious? By imagining. I do it. I do something that is purely about you know, the, the amplification of and the celebration of that which lived in my head. I share that vision with you. And, and then you in seeing it or interacting with it, with it, you become inspired. 
and it unlocks your own potential to imagine, to dream. And then you create something and then you share it. It's that. That's exactly what it is. That's what contagious is. I mean, I, my children's lives would look very different if there, if there were certain things that they didn't see from me. There were certain things, there, there are elements of their lives. I know other 20-year-olds and 17-year-olds that they, they would never even think it possible. But my children had it modeled for them. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm not talking about even grand scale things. I'm talking about sometimes just the the permission that you need to live out loud, which a lot of times our parents kind of try to keep <laughs> try to keep that kind of measured. And so I don't do that. So so they know that like they get to be fully expressed. They get to live out loud. I may not I may not understand what the hell it is they're doing. Right. Or what it is they're creating in the moment. But they get to create it. And they know that. They know that. And so that is part and parcel of the gift of imagination. I would like for all of us to try on the idea that we only know a fraction of who we could be or who we could become, what we're capable of, how much stretch we have, how much brilliance we have, what our capacity is. Um, I'm confident that there are at least 25 to 50 more miracles that are only mine, like that only belongs to me, that I need to figure out like what I'm here to do, you know? Um, but the only way that I can get there is to, to engage in risk-taking behavior. And in doing so, I permission the space to do the same, right? You won't die. People need to know that. You know what I mean? Like, you won't die. Risk-taking is just that. You take a risk. It's a bit terrifying. It's a bit jarring. Going into the unknown is always that, right? We love guarantees. Risk-taking behavior does not give you that. But on the other side of it may be a miracle. On the other side of it may be the life you didn't even know was waiting for you. And I think that's astonishing, and I think that's worth stretching out for. So that's how you, that's how you make it contagious. You model that. And you do it out loud. You don't do it in the dark, you know, in secret. I remember when I started writing, because I'm totally an accidental poet, but I remember that I was like, okay, so this is meaningful to me and terrifying. And I'm saying things I never thought I'd say, but that's cool. I'm just going to write it all down, put it in a trunk under my bed where it will stay forever. Okay. And then I'll die. And then my great grandkids will find the trunk and they will go, oh, my God. Our grandmother was a poet. Okay, so that was my plan. Okay, didn't work out that way. But that was my plan. This sort of Emily Dickinson method of creating. Right. I'll just do it in the dark. I'm not sure we can afford that right now. I think there's a level of urgency that requires us to do things out loud in the light. I think so. And I think that's how we make it contagious. One of the things that I've been 
looking at is this is is about what if questions. If you ask a really a really good what if question, there's some great examples I've found of places that say there's a place in France that said, what if in a generation's time a majority of food we eat in this town comes from the land around this town, and then they open this up as a question and people come in with ah well I've got I'm a baker and I can tell you about that and then the whole thing is now really the story of that place you know and I'm really uh -huh. interested in you know in what really good what if questions can unlock and it's and and one of the things with that is is for me about how do we keep really good what if questions alive over time and I know reading, you know, different things in, in, in the US, in the African-American community about like um, prison abolition is the most fucking amazing what if question. Like ha what if we had no prisons? What if we had no police and we just sorted it all out in a different way in our neighborhoods? You know, what what is your sense or your experience of of, of how you keep a really audacious what if question alive? I think it's just, I think it's purely about the acknowledgement that there is not just one way, one singular way of knowing that the context in which you were born, that you inherited, you inherited it. It doesn't mean that it's fixed. It doesn't mean that it can't move or that it shouldn't move. In fact, it should move. We should constantly be moving the needle. The world should not look the way it did for my grandparents. When we talk about police brutality and things like that in this country, it does. So that's why we can get to the what if question, because we're like, hundreds of years and you guys haven't imagined a scenario whereby we can figure out a way to not do this this way that's how you get those right part of it is about in fact being appropriately offended right or appropriately annoyed you know we've been doing it this way for x amount of years and it, at its base it's illogical or it certainly hasn't produced the results that we hoped it would maybe we should try something else but see again that involves risk-taking behavior and it involves acknowledging and interrogating your inheritance. And a lot of people do not want to do that. It's an inheritance. Okay, it was given to me by my mother. And so I will carry it forward and my daughter will. It's Sometimes that's bullshit. Like, you know, like one of the, the great analogies for me is the pot roast <laughs> analogy where, you know, there's this grandmother and she's making pot roast. She cuts the ends off so it fits neatly in her pan. And her daughter watches this and learns how to make pot roast. So then when she's making pot roast, she's cutting the ends off the pot roast and putting it in the pan. By the time you get three generations down, they're still cutting the ends off the pot roast. And that person that's doing that in the reason why the grandma cutting the ends off the pot roast in 1918 was because her pot was too small your pot can hold the whole pot roast but you haven't asked the right questions so you don't know you're just replicating you know what i mean you're just replicating and it's it's it doesn't hold the same it, your your pot can hold the whole pot roast your grandmothers could not there's no reason for you to cut the ends off this pot roast right so that for me is sort of like one of those, which we have those moments in my family all the time, like where my mother is doing something in the kitchen and then I'm writing it all down to make sure that I do it exactly the way she does. And invariably, I go, Mama, why do you put such and such in the... And she goes, oh, you know, I don't know. My mother just did it that way. And I, she has no idea. She has 
no idea why she's doing it that way. So, and she didn't expect to ask, right? I was just supposed to write it down and replicate it. We've been doing that too long. What if questions when we recognize or when we recognize we've been doing that too long? Replicating, repeating, and not asking the necessary questions. You might be cutting the ends off your pot rolls when your pot is big enough. That's what I have to say about that. <laughs> there was a question. I'm not. Did, did I send? Did I mention it when I wrote to you about the question I have asked everybody that I've interviewed for this project? Has been if it had been you who had been elected as President Christina in November 20, whenever it was, 16, and you had run on a platform of make America imaginative again. So your sense was we've got these huge, profound challenges and you know the the main way we're going to find a way through it is by reprioritizing imagination in education in uh-huh. public life in everything we need to just rather than most governments come in they say we have an innovation strategy which is just of no use to anybody but if you came and said <laughs> we're going to have a national imagination strategy we're going to fire up the imagination across society so that people can see beyond these big problems and they're just full of ideas and possibilities what might you what might you do in your first hundred days in the oval office i would have all of the corporate type a the bankers the money market all the lawyers the financial analysts the stock market folks the all of those cats, I would have the, the one, the ones whose entire existence, whose entire, their identity is so connected to money and gain and capitalism and winning. They have to go on a 30 day, <laughs> no phones, no computer. They'd have to work on a farm or on a reservation or in a field for 30 days, no electronics. I'd be interested in getting those folks back in their bodies. I'd be interested in getting the folks that drive sort of all the things that affect our the quality of our lives. I'd be interested in getting them to feel what it's like to be human again. Um, I would be probably pushing for an unschooling process so that there's an opportunity for kids to unlearn. Um particularly the things that have been stifling, the things that have, in fact, reduced imagination. Get them outside. Get them using their hands. Get them playing music and um, remembering what it's like to laugh and not have to hold it in because you might get in trouble if a teacher hears you. And I would and, and everyone would have to participate in some sort of cooperative event that benefits their specific community, whether you're doing some urban farm or community garden or trash pickup or some sort of book share, something, but it has to benefit your specific community, which means you don't get to dictate that. You have to actually talk to your neighbors. You know what I mean? It has to be a cooperative. You guys have to actually sit down and talk about what you guys agree with, you know, where you can find yourselves in the center and then build that thing probably what I would do. It'd be some real hippie shit. I, you know, cause I don't like politics. So, <laughs> so it would be, yeah, I just have everybody outside holding hands. And I don't know. What, what, what's your sense of, 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 of what the, 
the the Me Too movement and all of the uh, the extraordinary sort of uh, you know what's happened over the last couple of years in particular with that has had on on women's imaginations on on the feminine imagination in our culture. I don't know. It's a really good question. I don't know. It may not have the it may not have the outcome we wanted to have on that. I don't know if it's doing much for the imagination. I think it's doing something for ferocity. I think it's doing something for the persistence of and the insistence of women. I think it's waking certain women up to the fact that they should have always they always had a voice, that they should always have a voice, that they have authorship of over their bodies and their experiences, that they get to name, that they get to declare. Um, that they get to accuse. I, it's it's certainly doing all of that. But again, I go back to, the, uh, which is why I, I haven't actually, I support everybody, any woman, anybody, period, who, who juts out to say a hard thing, to confess, to acknowledge, to name. Um, they are my kindred. I know exactly what that feels like. So, so I support them, but I never, I never participated in this specific, you know, hashtag me too thing. I never did, even though I totally could, but I never did only because it's one thing to model readiness, but I don't want to compel it. Like I, that's so sensitive a thing, right? Like, if you're not ready, you're not ready. It doesn't matter that there's a groundswell of women who find themselves ready. It doesn't, who gives a shit? If you're not, you're not. And you shouldn't have to feel like now there's this urgency for you to confess or name because if not, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? That's not the evidence of your having healed or being progressive enough. I just, uh, there was an undercurrent, it was totally unintentional, but it, I think it it made women feel obligated um, to confess that which I'm not sure they were ready to, to, to confess. And that's problematic because it, you end up lacerating yourself. If you're not ready, you're just not ready. I don't give a shit about what movement is happening, right? Um, so I, I'm just not sure. I, I'm not sure me to address the imaginations of women, I, but I do think it permissioned them, and I do think that it put some starch in their backs. I do think it made them feel a sense of ferocity. I think that it created sort of a warrior clan. I think it created a kinship among survivors, and all of that is really good, really good stuff, really, really important. It's what happens on the other side of that. That will be the imagination. That will be the imagination part, right there. The women who, six months after they stared down the facts of their story, you know, and named it, and in so doing, interrupted everybody in their lives because their mama didn't know, their husband didn't know, their kids didn't know, their students didn't know, but here they are on Twitter saying everything, right? Six months after that is when we'll see what it did for the imagination because she is going to have to do something with that. It can't stay in the body that way. It, it's just too seismic. And so I'm, I'm curious about what happens after. 
What happens after when you participate in something like that? I mean, I, that's the other reason why I didn't participate because I already done that. For me, that happened. That was like, that was several exits ago for me, you know, um, the naming and, 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 and watching it fracture things, you know, in my life, watching it interrupt people in my life. It, and I understood that it would do that. But you're never quite, it doesn't even matter, doesn't matter how much intellectual, like how much you understand something intellectually, how it lives in the body emotionally is something different, right? And so, yeah, intellectually, I was like, this is going to be hard for, you know, the people in my life because I show up so big in the room and, you know, and I'm, and, and so this won't make sense to them, you know? And it didn't. And people don't like their version of the story being interrupted. So at first they're weird and then they're silent and then I can feel really abrasive and really lonely. And then you can grow resentment from that. I mean, it's a crazy thing. And so that's why I said, but then it was like, after that, after I got on the other side of all of that, got the hurt flat enough to be able to acknowledge myself and honor where I was and also honor where everybody else was. Right. Took some time. And then it was on the other side of that, that I started creating, you know, this last book is purely about, it's all imagination because it's, I didn't know her and I've never been experimented on. And, you know, so, but she, she got permission and and I feel like she chose me because I had done all this necessary work as a result of naming the times, the moments and the spaces and places in my life where I did not have authorship over my experience or over my body. And I couldn't say a thing, you know, um, shit. I don't know if I answered your question or not. I think me too is fabulous. OK, I mean, <laughs> I think it's I think it's fabulous. And. And I think we'll have to keep growing things from it. That's what I think. So I'm, I'm interested in this thing about, so here we are, we're in this situation. And one way you could look at it is that it's all like the, the amount of dystopian thinking around is just everybody you talk to just assumes, oh, it's all too late and it's all just fucked and the climate's going to hell in a handcart and it's all like the road. And, uh, and so, and anybody who says, but we could do something else. We could do. We could actually create something really great. We could create a low carbon, more fair, just way of doing everything. It could be really good, you know. And that always gets dismissed as being utopian. It's like you know that that is oh your utopian thinking. So I'm always really interested in in those stories of how it turned out okay, of how we might tell stories about the future in a way that we got there, and it wasn't perfect, and people still had arguments over breakfast, and the buses were sometimes late. But but we made it through and it was kind of okay, and that that thing of um, there's a beautiful book that um, Mohsin Hamid wrote called Exit West that's about migration, and he put has this thing where people are just magically able to just move around the world through these kind of portals that open up and it's a way it's a kind of a metaphor for what would it be like if there was just free movement around the world and then it was 30 years in the future. And actually people had landed and it was okay and it wasn't perfect, but it was all right. And they'd landed and they'd made lives for themselves and it had all kind of. And so I'm really interested in that idea of how we tell stories of the future where it turned out okay and not perfect, but okay. And I just wondered as a storyteller, 
whether you might have any thoughts about how we might best tell those stories about how it turned out okay rather than telling stories of utopias where people go yeah that's never gonna happen <laughs> yeah but you know for me it's like this i'm not living in a utopia now but i'm also not on the bottom of a slave ship see what i'm saying like i'm not on a plantation either so that's it that's i'm 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 still the best version of possible. I'm still my ancestors' wildest dreams. So it's it's no, it's not perfect, but it's seismic. You know, like that trajectory is seismic. And so that's where I can put my imagination. I and also I I believe entirely in the capacity of the mother. I do. I believe in her. I believe in her ability to restore and regenerate. She does it all the time. She does it over and over and over again. The earth is one miracle after another, right? I think she's reached a place like a wise elder would where she's like, you're going to have to help me up the stairs. You know, I still have the use of my hands, but I need your help now, right? Get to participate. And that's what I think the relationship is. That's what the future is to me. It's about the acknowledgement that we are the beneficiaries of a very giving earth. She gave a lot for a long, long, she's still giving. She's still scrappy as hell. She's still plucky. But she's also telling us in her own way, she needs help. She needs a hand. And and why why we would give it to her is the, the real question. Why wouldn't you, you know? So I don't know if I answered that, but that's for me, that's what it looks like. It looks like it it, it, in the same relationship, child to mother, when you when they are small, they take everything. They extract every resource from the mother, every single one. They almost never say thank you because they don't even know they they should. It's a given. It's an automatic. You know what I'm saying? This is your only role to do these things for me. And then at some point, the clarity comes, you know. You realize, yeah, you know, actually, I've gotten a lot from her. <laughs> She's walking a little slower now. Yeah, yeah. She's walking a little slower now. Maybe I should uh, figure out a way to come up these stairs by herself. Or she doesn't have a house that has stairs to plague her at all. Or you realize that, and then you participate. And then the transaction between you changes. Because now you acknowledge the fullness of who she is, not just what she was doing for you. Right. That's the relationship. That's the movement for us to with this planet. OK, we are now in a phase, a critical juncture whereby we need to pick our heads up and acknowledge what we are the beneficiaries of and that we now have to participate.